request. Thank you so much for being with us today. Our text will be found today in Colossians chapter 3. You kind of give you a heads up on that. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And uh, as you see on the screen, uh, the title of my sermon is You Raise Me Up So I Can Raise You Up. And today we're going to focus on Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Next slide. As you see on the screen, uh, when I begin to think of this text and study it out and come up with the title, You Raise Me Up, it reminded me of a very popular song. You see on the screen there is a uh, choir that is called uh, Color Music singing You Raise Me Up. Uh, the gentleman in the middle is uh, Brendan Graham. He is the man who wrote the song You Raise Me Up just over 20 years ago. And then uh, a fellow named Josh Groban uh, made this popular. You Raise Me Up was composed by Rolf Lovlin in 2001 and written by the gentleman in the middle, Brendan Graham. It was first recorded by a secret R. Garden, an Irish-Norwegian group, along with a gentleman named Brian Kennedy. Although the original version was not a major hit, the song has been recorded by more than 100 artists in over 50 languages. This song, You Raise Me Up, was first performed at the funeral of Rolf Loveland's mother. Uh, he composed it, Brendan Graham wrote it. Uh, this song was made famous by the American singer Josh Groban at the 2004 Super Bowl, which happened to be between the New England Patriots and, yes, North Carolina's Carolina Panthers. By the way, the Patriots won by three. Josh's performance of You Raise Me Up was watched by 90 million viewers during this 2004 Super Bowl. And to this day, uh, according to Google, this is the most viewers of any Super Bowl in history. So this song is a very popular song. We're about to watch some clips from the passion this song. Josh Grobman was Episcopalian in background, and this song reflects his personal faith in, right, in Christ. But this song can be interpreted differently by various people. According to the author and writer Brendan Graham, you, the you in You Raise Me Up is intentionally ambiguous. So a person can make you God or Christ, or they could just make it a family member, friend, or whoever. It was not originally written to be a Christian song, but many have used it as such as we do this morning. Psalm 41.10 says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Let's watch this together. You raise me up. <laughs> You raise me up so that I can raise him up. And next slide as we delve into our text today, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And as you see on the screen, we kind of have a breakdown of being raised up to new life in Christ, uh, being raised up to new life. 
to seek the Savior in prayer. We'll see that in verse 1. In verse 2, raised up to new life to set our mind on heavenly things. And raised up to new life to embrace his death and resurrection in verses 3 and 4. So if you have your Bible, your device, if you'll look up the scripture, Colossians 3, 1 through 17. And we'll jump into our text now. Share the message the Lord has given us for today. Colossians 3 reminds us of the importance of being raised up in new life in Christ. Uh, last week, Pastor Gary talked about not being disqualified. And uh, as you see in the very first passage of Scripture, in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1, uh, we me- immediately see, if, you, uh, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of, of God, seated at the right hand of God. Notice uh, the very first word in the ESV in verse 1 is if. And that really alludes back to chapter 2, verse 20. As Pastor Gary was explaining and teaching and sharing with us last week the importance of uh, not being disqualified, not getting called up in any kind of ism. Uh, legalism, asceticism, other isms, and superstitions that reflect worldly wisdom. Uh, But this is an important truth that if Colossian believers had truly experienced Christ, died with Christ, been resurrected with Christ, believed, received, repented, and were following Christ, why do you need to do the things of the world to fulfill the mission of Christ? And the answer is, we don't need to. And, uh, and so it's important in a relationship of grace with Christ to be reminded, as Colossians 2 taught us, that our sin debt has been canceled, but resorting back to rituals, traditions, could lead to disqualification. Uh, this week, uh, April sent me an email uh, that reminded me of this importance. Uh, it was an email from Newburn High School where I pastored for eight years and the football team, Pastor Gary, was forced to uh, disqualify and lose all their games from their state championship last year because they played ineligible players. Ter- yeah. And Pastor Gary had just spoken on that concept of being disqualified for not doing things as you should. And so uh, sad sometimes when we read of these things that a person or a group or a team or an organization uh, does not do things as they are supposed to and they are disqualified. Positional justification matters. The concept Paul many times teaches throughout the epistles is a legal and moral concept. We are positionally justified because Christ stands in my place and your place when we receive him by grace. We cannot stand in our own works. We are not good enough, however good we might be. We must stand in the power of by the blood of Jesus that has cleansed us from all sin. And positionally, when God sees you, he sees Christ. But 
practical righteous living matters also. Sometimes uh, we hear people say, you know, well, now that I'm saved, I'm eternally secure and I can live as I please. Colossians 3, our text 1 through 17, reminds us that we need to live the way we have been transformed by the power of the new birth. The book of James says it this way, quote, Faith without works is dead. And a real genuine faith works. We do good works because we are saved, not in order to be saved. We keep doing good works because the Holy Spirit within us continues to produce through the grace of God good workmanship for His glory. Paul shares it this way in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Universalism teaches that everyone is saved and good because Jesus died and paid the price for all sins. But the Bible teaches us that there is none good or righteous, that all are dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, Jesus paid it all, but every person has an individual responsibility to choose to receive the grace of Christ and to follow him as a disciple. Christ paid the atonement for all of humanity's sins, but not everyone has new life in Christ unless they have been raised up, born again, and saved. This is why our text begins with if. If. This is a challenge for us to be reminded. If, if you then have been raised or raised up with Christ, if you've been saved, and by way of application, Let me ask you this morning, have you been saved? Not just believed in God, not just believed in Christ with intellectual assent, not just because you're fearful and don't want to go to hell, but have you with your will chosen to follow and believe and receive and repent and trust Christ by grace through faith alone? Have you done that? That is why this section and text in Colossians is written to believers. It is being written to us as believers. And so we are raised up and saved to pray, not play. That's what the text is saying. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Why did Paul need to remind the believers in Colossae that Jesus was at the right hand of the Father? Because we are raised to new life to pray to our intercessor, our high priest, our mediator between God and men. Seek the Savior in prayer. He is our go-between. As believers in Christ, we can seek Christ in prayer at any time. You do not need a human priest or rabbi You don't need Pastor Gary or Pastor John. You don't need Pastor David Jeremiah. You don't need the Pope. You don't need some person to pray to and through. We have free access into the holy place, the holy of holies, by going by individual means and calling out to God any time in sincere and genuine prayer. Aren't you glad that there are no restrictions to praying to the true and living God for a believer? We can call out to him anytime. Over the years, I've known people that were riding down the road 
moving their lips, and they weren't talking to themselves, they were talking to Jesus. We can call upon him anytime, anywhere. N.T. Wright states, quote, The command here to aspire to the things of heaven is a command to meditate and dwell upon Christ's sort of life and on the fact that he is now enthroned as the Lord of the world, end of quote. Notice verse 1 says, Seek the things that are above. G. Campbell Morgan explains it this way, quote, The Greek word for seek marks aspiration, desire, passion. To seek those things, the mind must be set on them, end of quote. So we're raised to new life in Christ to seek the Savior in prayer. But notice verse 2. Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We can pray to him any time. But verse 2 says, not only seek the Savior, but set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. As I read the scripture, I immediately thought of something that my mom and dad used to say when I was a child. They used to say, don't be so earthly minded, you're no heavenly good, or so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. We are to set our mind on things above. Have you ever worked with someone or been hanging out talking to someone and you made a comment, and they took it the wrong way. And you said to them, get your mind out of the gutter. Paul, in this verse, is reminding us to not only seek the Savior in prayer, but to set our mind on heavenly things. Johnny Cash, in his song, No Earthly Good, talks about those who are holding heaven and encourages them to spread it around to those who need it here on earth. Many centuries before Johnny Cash sang, St. Augustine offered a similar warning and promise. He said, St. Augustine said, quote, we all not want to live ahead of time with only the saints and the angels, end of quote. In other words, be careful that you're not thinking so much about your future in heaven that you don't do some good on earth right now. Tim LaHaye grew up where my dad did in Detroit, Michigan. And in 1980, this author, Tim LaHaye, wrote a book, The Battle for the Mind. That's what verse 2 is telling us. Set your minds on things that are above. There is a battle of spiritual warfare for people's minds today. Setting our mind on heavenly things can create a proper balance of being raised up to both being heavenly minded and earthly good. C.S. Lewis argues in the book Mere Christianity, quote, If you take a careful look at history, you will find that those who have done the most for this present world are those who have thought most of the next world, end of quote. Isn't that interesting? Believers are to be outward focused, not just inward focused. Believers that are upward focused should not be downward focused. We have the liberty and freedom through the Holy Spirit to realize that this world is only a temporary home and we are to invest in eternal rewards. So set our minds on heavenly things. Don't mind, pun pun, being heavenly minded. Don't mind being heavenly minded. But notice our next point, we're raised up to new life to embrace Christ's death and resurrection. Verses 3 and 4 here in the SV. Notice, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As our opening song 
that we listen to together, You Raise Me Up, reminds us, and the author of that song reminds us, You Raise Me Up, popular song, was not written to be a Christian song. In fact, you can take that song, and it can be a wonderful humanitarian power of positive thinking song. You raise me up. It is a willful choice, and it is a moral and spiritual battle to be raised up and to embrace willfully the death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is one thing to say, let's encourage each other, let's lift each other up, let's raise each other up. It is another thing to be raised up in Christ, to battle with the flesh, because we have the Holy Spirit as believers within us. My dad used to say, son, the most difficult battle you will ever face in your life is the battle with your sinful flesh. And that brings us to our next point. In verse 5, we are to be raised up to new life by embracing and receiving the death, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. But now we're to be raised up to a new nature in Christ, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Notice verses 5 and 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Remember, the tone is set in Colossians 3, 1, referring back to the if of chapter 2, verse 20. If we've been raised up to new life in Christ, then we need to think like it, act like it, live like it. And here now is a practical warning in verses 5 and 6. We're raised up to a new nature by rejecting idolatry. Notice as I read in verse 5 from the ESV, it says, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You may think of some of these words and not think of idolatry. Notice the first phrase, verse 5, put to death. It is a strong Greek word meaning mortify, exterminate, wipe out. What does the word mortify mean? Well, it's connected to the undertaker. It's connected to something being put to death. Adam Clark writes, quote, We put to death in the sense of denying these things and considering them dead to us and us dead to them, end of quote. I quote again, N.T. Wright, he shares this, the word here translated sexual immorality in verse 5 refers to any intercourse outside marriage. In the ancient pagan world, as in our modern world, intercourse with a prostitute would be a specific application and in a pagan culture a frequent occurrence of this, end of quote. F.F. Bruce talks about not only the sexual immorality and impurity, the passion, the lust, the evil desire, but covetousness. Bruce, F.F. Bruce writes, quote, A wider range of meaning than fornication is attended here by the Greek word for uncleanness. It includes the misuse of sex, but is applicable to various forms of moral evil, end of quote. In other words, Paul is telling the church at Colossae, that you need to mortify, put to death, put on the new nature, and get rid of the old nature, exterminate, 
deny it, get away, do away with it because it's idolatry. We don't always think of living an unclean life or an un- impure life as a believer as being a form of idolatry. But notice this quote, G. Campbell Morgan, he writes, quote, What ecclesiastical court ever arraigned a church member for covetousness? End of quote. Now, thou shalt not covet one of the Ten Commandments, going back to Exodus chapter 20 in the Old Testament. Why is this idolatry? Clark again reveals this, quote, Every godly person seeks his or her happiness in God. The covetous person seeks happiness in his or her money or possessions or things or immorality or desires instead of giving in to God. Only God can give us what we ultimately need. Therefore, our covetousness becomes idolatry, end of quote. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve, throughout the Old Testament, of the building of the golden calf by the people of Israel, throughout the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, who were believers but lied to the Holy Spirit in the church and pretended to give everything to God as they gave a large donation but held much of it back. There is idolatry. What is that idea? It means that we're putting things that satisfy us on earth above our desire to follow and please God forever. Somebody has said idolatry is anything that becomes the affection of our heart over our relationship with God. We are raised up to think differently, to put to death the things that are evil and earthly and fleshly within us. Notice verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Be reminded, yes, a believer can continue to do things that are wrong and even at times immoral. It is not to be the lifestyle. It should be the exception, not the rule in our lives. But why is Paul teaching us that you're not to allow these to characterize your life? You're not to say, well, I'm saved now. I can live any way I want to. The wrath of God is coming against wickedness and ungodliness. Well, Pastor John, I don't believe that. They didn't believe that Noah was going to build an ark and a flood was going to come either, but it happened. We need to understand that there is a payday coming one day. We are raised to a new nature. And this new nature encourages us to reject idolatry. But notice in verses 7 through 9, to resist immorality. Verse 7 says, uh, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. We're raised to a new nature by resisting walking the same way we used to walk. A proper understanding of the Bible does not teach Christians that if they receive Christ, that they can live any way they please. What does Paul write? Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Notice this thing, verse 5. What did Paul write? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. So he named uh, things like sexual immorality and uncleanness. He's not through, is he? Continues to name some problems that were in the church. Remember, contextually, these are believers, This is a church that God is inspiring Paul to write to. This is not the unbelieving world who doesn't understand because they're dead in trespasses and sins and they do what's natural because it's natural. 
These are believers who have been saved, born again, raised to new life. They have a new nature. Yet they want to fulfill the desires of the old nature. And so what does he say? Put away, verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Pastor John, do Christians sometimes say dirty things? Yes. Being a Christian doesn't mean you walk around being perfect. That is why we are commanded, admonished here to raise, be raised up by putting on our new nature, by intentionally choosing to do the things that are right. Notice verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off, there's that phrase again, put to death, put away, put off the old self with its practices. N.T. Wright puts it like this, quote, In Jesus Christ, the saints of God are to be different people, end of quote. Way of application, if Christians are no different than the world, will the non-believer be interested in our beliefs? We have to allow the Holy Spirit to help us be raised up to a new nature. It's pretty sad when growing up in a pastor's home and hearing at seminars and hearing statistics shared behind the scenes that there are so many pastors and believers and staff that are covering up all kinds of sins and scandals. And even today we hear about some of the big names. It's sad. It should remind us we're all human and we cannot win the battle on our own. We have to be raised up to a new nature because we have a new life in Christ. But he's not going to live that life for us. God doesn't take away your choice just because you've accepted Christ. He lets each of us choose to do that which is spiritual or that which is of the selfish flesh each day. Verses 10 and 11 now, raised up to a new nature by renewing us in his image. Verse 10, and put, have put on the new self. Don't you like how the ESV terms that? The NLT puts it this way, put on your new nature. Put on your new self, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. We're raised up to a new nature by renewing his image. Remember, uh, Genesis tells us that God made all of humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, in his image. In the image of God, created each of us. Put on the self, the new self, the new nature. The phrase Paul's using here is used commonly for changing a set of clothes. It's kind of hot, Brother Pastor Gary. So, kind of like this. This is even worse. Big overcoat. We're to put to death the things that shouldn't be in our lives and the old nature. And we're to put on the things of God to be renewed in the new nature. A little chilly this morning. Might be time to wear a jacket to work next week. We put on His righteousness. We put on the new nature. By the way, we have a new life. We're saved. Yes, we have eternal security. But God doesn't put our coat on for us. And April doesn't put my coat on for me. She just tells me and reminds me to do it. We have a choice, even after salvation, to be renewed in our knowledge of Christ, to be renewed in our new nature by renewing His image within our image. Yes, we're depraved. Yes, tainted by sin. 
But God desires the best in our lives. I like to put it this way. Get in the Word, and the Word will get in you. Romans 12, 1 through 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Putting on the new self by renewing the intent of the Creator who made us is the point in this text. In the eyes of our Creator, in the eyes of true believers, there are no barriers because of Christ. Notice verse 11, ESV. It says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The NLT says, Christ is all that matters and He lives in all of us. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from. You are a child of God just as much as I'm a child of God. You are a child of God just as much as our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters overseas, our brothers and sisters anywhere in the world. We are all equally the children of God. And here he's saying, be renewed. Be renewed in our new nature because there are no barriers Maybe the Old Testament seemed that God only was worried about the people of Israel, the apple of his eye. But those barriers have essentially been taken away completely. He's not willing that any should perish. There's no different to God difference between Gentile and Jew. We are all in Christ. F.F. Bruce shares this thought, quote, In the arena of Carthage in A.D. 202, a profound impression was made on the spectators when the Roman matron Perpetua stood hand in hand with her slave Felicitas. Both women were facing a common death for their faith in Christ. Amen? I know there's probably better ways to die, but what better way than free and slave standing together one in Christ? And then finally we're raised up to new a new name by choosing righteousness, verse 12. Here's that phrase again. Put on then. Put death. Put away. Put on then, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I had a motto many years at the Bible University I attended, Pastor Gary, to know him and to make him known. That's a pretty good motto. We are to be raised up to a new name by choosing righteousness. April and I enjoyed talking with Jan today and Grace and Jessica about their names and the origin of their names and the evolution of their names and the names that they bear. And the name that is most important for all of us, regardless of our background, is that we have a new name in Christ. We have a new life in Christ by receiving Him by faith through grace alone. That we have trusted in Him and He has given us now a new nature. And as we allow that new nature, as we put on the new nature and put to death the old nature, then we can be renewed and raised up to a new name. To bear the name of Christ. William Barclay, scholar, writes, quote, It is most significant to note in verse 12 that every one of the graces listed has to do with personal relationships between man and man, human and human. There is no mention of virtues like cleverness or efficiency, nor even of diligence or industry. None of that 
uh, is necessarily unimportant, but the great basic Christian virtues are those which govern human relationships, end of quote. So verse 12 says, put on mercy, meekness, kindness, humility, and patience. And then notice verses 13 through 15, raised up to a new name by forgiveness, love, and peace. It's almost like verse 12 introduces putting on this new robe, putting on our new nature, putting on this new name of being God's chosen one by being called a Christian, a Christon. That he's telling us what? Well, put on these good things, but now he breaks it down. Three specific things. Notice verse 13. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The characteristic of a believer's life as you renew the new nature, as you're raised up in new life, as you were raised up to a new name, is to be a person of forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon wrote this interesting quote. Quote, suppose that someone has grievously offended you and asked you for forgiveness. Do you not think that you would probably say, well, yes, I forgive you, but I'm not going to forget it. Ah, dear friends, writes Spurgeon, that is a sort of forgiveness with one leg chopped off. It is a lame forgiveness and it's not worth much. End of quote. <laughs> I forgive you, but I won't forget. Believers should be characterized by their attitude of forgiveness because we represent the name of Christ. I know WWJD kind of got wore out as a trend. But it's a pretty reflecting question. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus forgive others? Even those that did him wrong? Yes. He said on the cross, one of seven sayings, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We should be characterized by forgiveness. Notice the next verse, love. Verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Adam Clark writes, quote, as the outer garment covers the whole body, so let love or charity encompass everything. Let love be as the upper garment that characterizes and covers our whole person. Paul writes, without love, I am nothing. No matter how many good things I do, if I don't have real love, all that I do is nothing. We put on forgiveness. We put on love. Notice peace. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. F.B. Meyer writes these words, quote, the Apostle Paul plainly states, let the peace of Christ rule. The Greek word here for peace or rule means arbitrate. In other words, this passage is saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's saying, let God's peace act as an umpire in your life. Instead of us being our own referee and umpire, we let God, the love and peace of God, act as an arbitrator in our lives. Let God be in control. We're raised up to a new name, finally, by word and deed, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, Adam Clark notes the phrase in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, is an interesting word, quote, it appears here to be an allusion to the Old Testament Shekinah glory. 
a symbol of the divine presence of God which dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple, end of quote. And then he comments on this phrase, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The emphasis here, writes Clark, is more on variety than on strict categories. This variety suggests that God delights in creative, spontaneous worship. We can scarcely say what is the exact difference between these three expressions, end of quote. What the point is, is that because we've been raised up to a new life, to a new nature, and a new name in Christ, in our actions, and our words and deeds, we should be praising God. And sometimes it can be spontaneous. The scholar Peak reiterates this concept with this quote. Quote, the word of Christ is to dwell in us so richly that it finds a spontaneous expression in religious song in the Christian assemblies or in the home, end of quote. There's nothing like you just start singing a song out of the blue and your spouse or your child or your loved one in that home is like, why are you singing that? I don't know. It just came to my mind. I just started thinking about it. I just started singing. Praising the Lord because he has been so good to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tells us whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. So we've been raised to new life. We've been raised to have a focus and dwell on a new nature and let the new nature through the word of God and the spirit help us put to death the old nature. And we've been raised to have a new name in Christ to uh, be an ambassador for Christ by sharing by our actions, by our witness with Christ, for others, the life of Christ through us. 